Welcome to Keeping the Nostalgia Live show. I am your host, Billy Powell. You know, normally we're talking basketball on here. We've done a couple of baseball interviews. We've done a lot of authors with both baseball and basketball books. But uh, today we're going to have author Doug Wilson with us, uh, who's written several books. Today we're going to talk about Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks. But also in his repertoire is Pudge, the biography of Carlton Fisk, Brooks, the biography of Brooks Robinson, The Bird, uh, not Larry Bird, The Life and Legacy of Mark Fidrich, although there is a great picture of Larry Bird and Mark Fidrich together, which is it's kind of incredible. And also a book uh, it's called Fred Hutchins and the 1964 Cincinnati Reds, and uh, I was looking into that one today, and um, uh, it looks sad, but it looks like a, 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 a outstanding read. So uh, author Doug Wilson is with us. Uh, Doug, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule uh, to chat with us about your books, especially the one about Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks, and uh, thanks for joining us. Well, thank, thanks for having me on. You know, I read where you played baseball, but you're... Uh, the, the averages weren't really that high, so you decided to start writing about baseball. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, I, I just always loved baseball since I was little. And, uh, you know, once it gets in your blood, it's hard to get out. Um, yeah, yeah, I played through college, but uh, one day I realized my batting average wasn't as high as my, my grade point average, and I needed <laughs> to do something to make a living. But, but baseball never got out of my, my blood, and so the, the writing... Just, just helps me stay close to the game. Uh, where are you? Tell everybody where you're originally from, and uh, uh, when did a, a love for baseball come about with you? Um, well, I uh, went to high school in Kentucky. My, my dad was in the Air Force, and, uh, so we moved around a lot when I was little. I grew up in Florida, uh, and we were near the spring training side of uh, the Minnesota Twins. So back in those days, went to spring training games and watched them. Carmen Killebrew was my hero when I was little, but um, so I was, you know, five, six years old, just playing baseball from the earliest I can remember, waiting around trying to get into games with the big kids in the backyards, and, uh, uh, you know, it just kind of went from there. Did you have an ultimate favorite team or favorite player that you like to follow, or was it just baseball in general? Yeah, you know, baseball in general. Every kid back then, we appreciated the uh, you know the the beauty of Willie Mays and uh, the power of Mickey Mantle and those guys were just idols. Uh, for, for myself, though, uh, uh, living in Kentucky, the Big Red Machine was, was obviously the Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez. Those years, you, you just couldn't be better than that. Oh man, the uh, the Cincinnati Reds. You know, growing up in Indian, I grew up in Indianapolis, and you know, uh, uh, the Indianapolis Indians were in the American Associations, and the Big Red Machine would come twice a year for ex- exhibition games, and that was just a that was just just awesome to see being a Reds fan. Yeah, yeah, you, you saw King Griffey, and uh, you know, all those guys came through in the seventies. They were the AAA team of the Reds for a while. Um, so, it, it kind of, what was what was your first first book that you wrote, and what kind of gave you the idea? Look, I'm going to write about baseball. Um, what you know, when you're in your career and you got kids and stuff, you're always too busy for anything. And uh, all of a sudden, my my two boys were off at college, and I realized I had some extra time on my hands. And um, the, the first book was about Fred Hutchinson. He, he was the first man ever to have his number retired by the Reds. Uh, most people have forgotten him. 
unfortunately. Now he he led him to the pennant in 1961, and then he contracted cancer in 1964. He tried to make it through the season. He didn't tell anybody what was going on, but they could all see something was was happening to him. And um, and that was the famous year that the Phillies had a huge lead going into the uh, last two weeks of the season, and the Reds caught fire. Um, they won 11 games in a row and pulled even with them, and um, they almost pulled out the pennant for their ailing manager, but uh, the two teams knocked each other off, and the Cardinals slipped in the back door. But So the whole season was, was exciting. And, and was that about – when did that book come out, about 2009, 2010? Yeah. yeah. When, 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 you and, start, when you start a book like that, I mean uh, – Give us a little bit of the research process. Who do you get to talk to? Is it fun talking to those people? Do you find it hard for them to open up? Um, it, it depends on who you get a hold of, but uh, you know that's definitely the the best part for me is talking to all these guys that you know I remember them as a face on a baseball card. But then when when you talk to them, you actually get to know them and know the person you know behind the the player. Um, and and you know it's, it's it's really important to get those first person accounts because you can read all the newspapers and magazines you want, but um, a lot of times the guys will tell you the real story or what was going on behind the scenes. And, um, so so for that team, I, I for every book I try to get a hold of almost everybody that can be gotten a hold of all, all the players and uh, the the best I think are, are the old relief pitchers. You know, because some of those guys in the '60s, they didn't make a lot of money. They didn't get a lot of attention, and they spent their time out in the bullpen telling jokes. And, and you get a hold of one of them sometimes, and they'll talk your ear off. You just don't. You feel bad hanging up because they they just have so many great stories. You know, in some of the interviews that I do, it's the same way here, too. Most of the time when I get a hold of them, they'll be like, how long do you want me to talk? And I'll say, about 45 minutes. Whoa, 45 minutes? What am I going to talk about? And then and then they end up not, you can't get them to shut up. So, but uh, uh, that's that's good stuff. Who, who um, So, so what was the, was, was that, that was your first book. Did you, evidently you yeah. enjoyed the process enough um, or learned enough about it to, to go with your second one. But what was it like uh, preparing your first book? And I'm assuming I, I did not ask this question. Are, are you a doctor? Yeah, yeah, I'm an ophthalmologist. Okay. So that that's my day job. <laughs> I I I sell children's shoes and children's toys for my day job, and I'm still working it. So I I I, I hear you. Hey, so um, so tell me about the process. Did, did you get done with the book? Was it was it was it uh, well received? Did you did you think during the book process? Hell, I'm not going to write another book. I'm done with this stuff. But evidently, you didn't. Yeah, you know, I, I enjoy putting things together and, and organizing them. And uh, you know, for that book, you know, if you don't have anything on your resume, sometimes it's hard to get a foot in the door. And so I completed the book, and then you, you know, sent off letters to try to find a publishing company. And uh, and it got uh, McFarland. They do a lot of baseball books. They're kind of a smaller uh, company, but. Uh, after I had that one, like I said, I did enjoy it, and um, and then I, I thought about you know Mark Fedrich's The Bird, just because he was so popular in the 70s, he was such an icon for that era, and for that one, I, I, I did land a bigger uh, publishing company, and so that they made the process a whole lot easier after that. 
what was it like doing uh, uh, your research and doing uh, the book on uh, Mark Fidrich? Well, that that was fun because everybody I talked to, and uh, anyway, I talked to a lot of people that he grew up with, and, and as soon as I told them what uh, you know what I was doing, they all got a big smile on their face because he just brought so much fun and energy to the game. You know, everybody everybody loved the guy. I mean, he was just that kind of a person. He always had fun no matter what he was doing. And so immediately everybody started laughing and launched into a, a whole bunch of stories about him. And, um, you, you know, that was just just fun listening to, to everybody talk about that. What a tragic uh, ending to uh, uh, the yeah. bird's life, too. Yeah, yeah, that, that was really, like I said, it was just a tragedy. Uh, did you do the book before his passing? No, it was after. It was after his passing. And, uh, yeah, and, and that was kind of gave me the idea, you know, because I looked around and nobody had ever really done a book about him since his big year. And, uh, you know, he had such a great story of what he did after baseball, how he faced, uh, you know, his career ending injuries, um, just how he interacted with people went back to the small town and became a regular guy a lot of people didn't even know that at one point he was probably the most popular person in the entire country but uh so, so I, I thought that was just such a neat story that uh you know somebody needed to tell it what goes into your process of what you're going to write write about or who you're going to write about next what what needs to kind of fall in line for you to pick your next subject um in general i try to uh, I like the guys from the 60s and 70s that I knew when I was little as, as you know, uh, just the guys who were bigger than the game that I feel were icons for whatever reason. And, and of course, you had to have a subject that hadn't been beaten like a dead horse. Um, you know, if, if somebody's had a million books about him, you know, one more's not going to really make a dent in the world's literature. And, and so, you know, the, those those things are the main ones that that go into the process. And like I said, like with the Ernie Banks book, you know, I always felt he was bigger than the game. You know, everybody loved him in Chicago. Everybody loved him all through baseball. And I was surprised to find that really nobody had ever taken a serious look at, at his entire life and career. He wrote an autobiography in 1971. There's been a few other smaller books, but, uh, you know, I thought there was definitely a void there. Uh, was there a void also when you were researching Carlton Fisk and Brooks Robinson? Yeah, yeah, and, and again, you know, each one of them uh, had, you know, of course, Fisk had the the classic moment in the '75 series, but uh, he had a long career as a Hall of Famer after that. And of course, Brooks Robinson uh, is, is still probably the most popular icon in Baltimore, but nobody had ever written a book about about either one of them. So, uh, like I said, it was. Uh, something that I, I felt was needed to be out there for the next generation to know about these guys. Um, where where can they get these books, by the way? Um, well, they're all available on the normal online uh, sites, you know, Amazon. Uh, uh, the the uh, the ones that have been out for a while may not be in the bookstores, but uh, you know, the Ernie Banks book just came out a week ago, so it's in all the bookstores. It's uh, you know, of course, on Amazon uh, from the publisher's site. Um, actually, the Ernie Banks book is in the uh, Costco's in the Chicago area, so so that's a convenient place for people who are up there. 
which was which was your next one after uh, the bird? Was it uh, Fisk or Robinson? Uh, Brooks Robinson. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about doing that book? Um, well, the the really hard part about the Brooks Robinson book is is you know he's just universally viewed as one of the nicest guys, and and really in the '60s you had a, a triad of three guys, the, the nice guys of the game: Brooks Robinson, Stan Musial, and Ernie Banks. The the problem with Brooks, and I talked to a lot of people who, who he grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas. Everybody I mentioned to immediately launches into all these stories of what a great guy he was, what he did for people, things he'd go out of his way to be nice to fans, to people, you know, guys he grew up with uh, as a little kid. He was just always like that. And that was, that was hard after a while. I felt like saying, I, you know, I didn't ask about Mother Teresa. I asked about Brooks Robinson. <laughs> but, you know, everybody had stories like that. And so, you know, it was hard trying to pare that stuff away, um, you know, but it's really impressive that uh, a guy can live his whole life and be held in that regard uh, by people from all walks, whether he had ever even touched a baseball or not. They they still loved him just because he was such a great guy. You know, I didn't look into it. I did not research it. So this is a, a true, legit uh, question or statement. But when I, when I first saw that you did the book on, on Brooks, the first thing that came to my mind was, was he ever called the human vacuum cleaner? Oh, yeah, yeah, that was his nickname uh, back from the early days because he was just such a great fielder. And, and that's the, the other thing that everybody mentioned, and again, even as a teenager, he you really can't put into words how good he was as a fielder. Um, you, you know, the, the guys who were relief pitchers, they said, you know, for the Orioles, we loved when a new guy would join the team because we'd sit out in the bullpen, and invariably within a game or two, Brooks would make a play and the guy's jaw would just drop and say, I've never seen a play like that. And, and we go, yeah, he does it all the time, no big deal. And it was really too, you know, and unfortunately they didn't have all the videos, the highlight shows and stuff, but they said, that, you know, nobody has ever been able to do things with a glove that he could do on a routine basis. You know, I'm I'm probably a little bit younger than you, and my baseball card and uh, 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 listening to baseball on the radio probably started about 72. But, um, you know, once we got to 1978 and Dodgers and Yankees were in the World Series, I, I, my thought was that if I could have watched Brooks Robinson on TV at that time, he re- would have reminded me a lot of the way Craig Nettles did a lot of stuff for the Yankees. Yeah. Yeah, Nettles had that one big World Series where everything was coming at him and he was making the plays. And, uh, you know, Brooks did that his whole career. And, of course, he did that for a week in 1970 in the World Series. It just you know, blew everybody away single-handedly, just destroyed the Big Red Machine. Yeah, the Big Red Machine would have been more of a dynasty than it is now if they could have pulled that one off in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm I'm assuming you you sat down. Did you sit down with Brooks? Um, no, actually, when I was researching that book, he had I, I contacted him and and uh, you know he had just had a, a a series of bad medical problems and then he had a really bad fall uh, when he was at a charity event down in Miami, uh, almost broke his uh, spine and so. He was, for about six months he wasn't seeing anybody. He uh, was really in bad shape, and so, you know, I didn't want to bother him with, the, uh, you know, when he needed to be doing other things. But, but also, you know, for a guy like that, it's hard to, you know, he can't 
tell you how good he was or how how much of a nice guy he was right. because he's so modest. And so a lot of the story there was better for other people to say it for him because he wasn't going to w- wouldn't say that stuff himself. So you're still enjoying the process. You've gone through uh, Hutch. You've gone through uh, 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 Mark Fidrich. You've gone through Brooks Robinson. You're still really enjoying this uh, writing thing. What what pulls you along to Carlton Fisk? Um, actually, Carlton Fisk, the the guy who edited by the Bird Book and the Brooks Robinson book, called me and said, you know, it was coming up on the what 40th anniversary. Uh, of the 1975th World Series, 75 World Series of uh, this big home run, and he called and said, you know, we'd like to get a book on on Fisk because nobody's ever done a uh, biography, and you know, with the anniversary of that moment, it's probably the TV moment, one of the TV moments in baseball history that everybody remembers, and uh, so, you know, that was uh, how that process got started for that one. You know, my favorite memory of that favorite memory of a lot of people is the next game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah especially for Reds fans. That's, that's what everybody always says. That, you know, after a while, everybody thought the, the you know, Reds won that, or the Red Sox won that World Series three games to four. You know, everybody seems to forget that the Reds won the next night and won the series. Now, yeah, I was a little bit confused too because, and you know, it may be because I, I haven't stuck my neck or stuck my nose in the internet or books, but um, uh, he's the original Pudge. Yeah, yeah, and actually, he was called Pudge from. Uh, supposedly, the story goes that one of his aunts looked at him when he was in the crib and thought he was a pudgy-looking little guy. But you talked to a lot of guys who grew up with him and people. Uh, played basketball with him in high school and stuff. He never really was pudgy looking. By the time he got to junior high, he was just uh, a man among boys, but he wasn't pudgy. But everybody in that town, they still call him Pudge or Pudgy. You, you know, there's, you'd see uh, newspaper uh, newspaper headlines from when he was 16 years old in high school. You know, Pudgy leads uh, Charlestown to victory. <laughs> what they put in the paper, and like I said, some of these guys are. 75 years old that played and and played basketball in high school they still call him Pudge so that was just always always his name from when he was little and he was a tall guy too also yeah yeah for especially for a catcher he was like 6'3 6'4 so what was the writing that what was the process of writing that book like did you get to sit down with Carlton he's a famously uh, private guy he he gives very very few interviews uh um, he's never written an autobiography. Basically, he just wants people to leave him alone, which, you know, you got to respect that. <laughs> but, uh, uh, which actually added to the story, I thought, because, you know, he never hesitated to tell people to their face a lot of times what he thought of them if he didn't think his teammates were trying hard or anything like that. But, but I, I did his, his, you know, his brother lives in Indianapolis. Uh, his older brother, Calvin, uh, the story goes he was almost as good as, as Carlton. And baseball, he had to go to Vietnam. And then he had been drafted by the Orioles. When he got out of Vietnam, they told him, you know, you're 22, you're too old to be a rookie. But so he taught at the medical school. He was a biology professor for, for 20, 30 years in Indianapolis. But so I talked to him a whole lot. And uh, I went up to their hometown in New Hampshire. Uh, his sister and, and mother 
they showed me around the old house and stomping grounds and, and all that. His mother was really neat because she was about 96 years old at the time, still very active, just a great uh, warm personality. Showed me all his pictures from when he was in kindergarten through high school. And, and so that was really enjoyable just seeing that, seeing where he came from. Um, when you finished both the Fisk and Robinson book, did uh, either one of the gentlemen get a copy of the book and did they say what they thought about your book? Um, the uh, Brooks did. And he's a lot of people, uh, you know, he he's, makes a lot of appearances still and, and uh, have some friends who talk to him about it you know like at the uh, at the uh, hall of fame weekend in cooperstown things like that and so he's mentioned uh, that he enjoyed it and and actually after the book came out i went back to little rock they had a literary festival uh, they invited me to to talk about the book and there were about 50 people in the crowd who had went to high school with him they all had to come up and tell me a story and tell me how much they enjoyed the book and so that that was really enjoyable. And, and you talked about uh, going to Cooperstown. Have, have you gone up there and spoke uh, as an author, or uh, how many times have um, you been up there and tell me about uh, what that what what that's like being in that area? Um, I've just been there once. I, I, I spoke about the Brooks Robinson book uh, at, at the Hall of Fame, and, and that was uh, great. I mean, I could stay there for a year. I mean, as a baseball fan, just the whole town. Is, is just walking down the streets around the uh, Hall of Fame and just everything in the Hall of Fame is just just uh, unbelievable. I mean, just such a fun thing. And actually, I went up there with my son, so that was a neat thing to get to share with him. And the the weekend that I did that, I was talking at the Hall of Fame, and then uh, we ran up to Charlestown, New Hampshire, because I was researching the Fisk book. And so I used that. I went through the Hall of Fame's uh, files on Carlton Fisk, and then that was the weekend we had set up to meet uh, his mother and sister. It was about three hours from Cooperstown, so so I drove up and and we went through there. So uh, so that was fun to get to share that with him. You know, I've driven through the place, and uh, we stopped just for a little bit, but I didn't get to go in those hallowed halls. That's that's still on my bucket. That's still yeah, on my bucket you gotta list. You got to do that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, everybody's got to do that at least once. Well, before we start to chat about uh, Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks, when did the light bulb go off over your head and you said, man, I've got to get out of Kentucky and get to Indiana where it's happening? <laughs> well, actually, uh, yeah, I went to medical school in Louisville and Kentucky, and then uh, my residency for eye training was in Alabama, and then I went to the Air Force four years after that I was an ophthalmologist in the Air Force and so when I came out of the Air Force I looked for a place to practice and uh, I went somewhere in the Midwest and just kind of looked around and, and Indiana uh, turned out to be a pretty good place to be. And uh, I'm assuming is, is that Columbus, Indiana is where you reside? Yeah. 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 We're about uh, 40 miles south of Indy. Beautiful in the fall isn't it? Beautiful in the fall. Yeah. 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 Um, so, w w what light bulb goes over your head, and what catches your? Uh, you, you know, I know you said that there was a, a an autobiography by um, uh, Ernie in the '70s, early '70s. But what caught? What you know? I, I need to write about Ernie Banks. What what caught that? Um, uh, uh, what, what made you go and in, delve into that? Well, I guess the, the main thing is, you know, he was getting up in the age, and then he, when he passed away, it, it struck me that. 
you know, again, nobody had ever written a good book about him, and he was such a great player, such an icon of the game, but all anybody talked about is two things, you know, Mr. Cub, you know, the image of the smiling, optimistic Ernie Banks, Mr. Cub, and then, you know, the saying, let's play too, and, you know, there was a whole lot more to the story, a whole lot more to the man um, than those two things, and I just felt that it was something, especially the next generation of fans, it's good for them to know particularly how good he was in his prime because he was an incredibly good player. And also, he was a lot deeper of a person than just the Mr. Cub image. There was a lot there. He overcame a lot of challenges in his life and um, a lot of things he he didn't talk about, but uh, you really had to appreciate what he went through. You know, to the casual baseball fan, probably 8 out of 10 know who Ernie Banks is, but I bet you it's a little bit lower number that those people can tell you the position that he played for the Cubs. Yeah, and, and you know, even people who remember him in the 60s, that was after he, his knees were gone and he played first base and um, he had slowed down a whole lot, but you know when when he was he was a shortstop when he came up and he played shortstop for nine years for the Cubs and and he revolutionized the position of shortstop. Nobody had ever hit like that playing shortstop in the major leagues. And uh, he would have had more time in the major leagues. He, did he start out? Am I mistaken? Did he start out with the Kansas City Monarchs? Yeah. Yeah, as a, as a 19-year-old, he, he graduated high school one day, got on a bus, and uh, was on the field for the Kansas City Monarchs the next day. And uh, that was in 1950. And, uh, you know, that was three years after Jackie Robinson had joined the, the Dodgers. But, you know, as a teenager playing shortstop for the Monarchs, the Monarchs were like the New York Yankees of the Negro Leagues. You know, they were the, the class of the league. And you know, three years earlier, the shortstop for the Monarchs was Jackie Robinson. So, you know, pretty big shoes to fill for a teenager. Was, but he played one year for them, and then he got drafted in the Army, lost two years to the Army, and then he came back out and joined the Monarchs for one more year, and then the, the Cubs signed him at the end of that year. Um, was this book, the Ernie Banks book, was this the, the hardest one uh, uh, research-wise that you had to do out of all the, the books that you've done, or was this the easiest one? Um, that, that's a good question. I would say it's probably the hardest to track down some of the essential people that I really needed to talk to. Uh, for one reason, you know, I wanted to find out about how things were when he was a kid. You know, he grew up in Dallas, a section of Dallas it was, it was a totally segregated society back then, Jim Crow hanging over their heads. And, uh, you know, I can't describe that to somebody, and I can't read a book and and say that's how it was. I really wanted to talk to some guys who grew up with him and let them tell me how it was. And, and I was lucky to find several. Uh, they weren't easy to find because that part of town doesn't exist anymore. And so, but but it was great finding those guys when I finally did. They're all in their 80s, of course, now. Uh, you know, a couple of them, you know, grew up, were friends with him when they were five, six years old, when I played football with him on the high school football team. But so it, it was essential to find those guys. And, and also, I was lucky enough to find three guys who played with him on the Kansas City Monarchs. And so it was uh, important to just sit back and listen to their stories, too, of, of their travels, how things really were then, of 
a plan for Buck O'Neill, who was their manager at the time, and uh, so it was hard getting those finding those guys. But uh, other than that, the, the research was was easier. And you know, when you do a lot of this research and you get to sit down or you get to talk to these people on the phone, you know, you, uh, you get a little starstruck. Um, how did you handle that kind of stuff through all of your books? Um, you know, that was harder early on, especially probably one of the biggest was uh, uh, Mark Fidrich's manager when he played for the Tigers was Ralph Houck, um, you know, who was the manager of the 1961 Yankees with Mickey Mantle, Roger Maris, and all those. And so, you know, as a little kid, we'd always thought Ralph Houck was just, you know, up on a pedestal. And, and and actually, I found him. He was in a phone book. Yeah, he was living in Winter Haven, Florida. He was about 85 years old. I just called him, you know, out of the blue. As soon as I t- mentioned Mark Fidgets, he started laughing. You know, he said, <laughs> I love the guy. He was the best, you know, finished player I ever had. But uh, to, to him, you know, I almost felt like the old uh, Chris Farley uh, thing on Saturday Night Live <laughs> with, the, with the Beatles. You, 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 you remember the 1961 Yankees? <laughs> they were awesome, <laughs> but but you know after a while you get used to it, and uh, well you never get totally used to it. But certain guys, you know, you you're just lucky to to you feel lucky to be talking to them, and that's the fun of doing it. Um, in, in any of this research, do you get? Uh, I mean, is it is it heartfelt from the guys? Do you get tears from the guys when they're telling the stories? Do you feel like you need to tear up yourself? Uh, some it depends on the subject uh you know one of the ones was uh, Earl Weaver you know everybody thinks of Earl Weaver as screaming and cussing at umpires getting thrown out of games a crusty old guy and of course he is that but I was talking to him about Brooks Robinson and uh, he started tearing up on the other side that he had just been in Baltimore for uh they were dedicating a, a statue uh, to all the Baltimore people in the Hall of Fame and and they'd had one for Earl, and he said Brooks came to the to the luncheon the day before. That was when Brooks was really, really sick, and it was the first public appearance he'd made in six months. And, and Earl Weaver started crying, talking about that. He said that was just such a great thing for Brooksy to do, because I know he felt bad, but he wanted to be there for me. And he said that's just like Brooksy. And you know, I, I just you know sat there, didn't say anything for for a while. You know, you think a you know, tough Earl Weaver. But, uh, yeah, a lot of these guys, and, and it just gives you an example of how much they loved the game, how much it meant to them when they start talking about things that they did 40 years ago when they were young men and immortal. And, uh, you know, like I said, it gets in your blood, and, and they they enjoy talking about it, and sometimes, you know, it is emotional for them. You know, it's this may sound kind of a dumb statement, or or try to get a response from you, but you know, it's it's, you know, and that's why I do what I do with keeping the nostalgia alive. Is just, you know, that's that's never it's as much as you want to think that it it's going to be that way again. It's the, the game of baseball or in the stuff that I do with basketball. It, it's not gonna it's never going to come back, and it's never going to be the same. So it's you know, you, we try to catch that in a bottle and try to share it and keep it alive. Is, does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. And, and I've noticed, I think it, there's a big difference from the guys who played the game before they made a lot of money. 
Uh, you know, like I mentioned, you you talked to a relief pitcher who made eight thousand dollars a year, uh, who worked uh, selling used cars in the off season to make make his bills. You know, they all seem to be a lot easier to talk to and and have a different emotion. Um, you know, a lot of the guys after free agency who made millions of dollars, they don't even want to waste their time talking to you sometimes. You know, so and, and they can go out and make eighty thousand dollars in a weekend of signing their their autographs. So why do they want to waste their time with you? So, yeah, I think it is like you said. It's, it's an era that uh, things will never be that way again. And and some of that, you know, it's kind of sad. Uh, Doug, what what is on Doug Wilson's uh, baseball bookshelf? I mean, um, what 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 kind of books did you read uh, up to the point where you started writing books yourself? Uh, are there writers out there today that you enjoy reading? Um, yeah, I, I do have a, a one. Well, I've got a lot of baseball books, but I've got one shelf. It's kind of like my shelf of fame. Um, of course, I've got Ball Four on it, uh, The Boys of Summer, uh, the, the original Babe Ruth book by Robert Creamer came out in 1970 some of those are just just classics that uh, should be on every baseball fan's shelf um i really like lee montville he was my favorite writer uh of baseball um and 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 probably i tried to shamelessly imitate uh you know sadly inadequately but uh to imitate some of his writing style but his biography of babe ruth the big bam and he did a great biography of ted williams uh and so those are, are my go-to books that, uh, you know, I, I like to read. The way, that, just the way they approach the subject, the way that they uh, integrate things into them. Uh, the name of the book is Let's Play Two: The Life and Times of Ernie Banks. Uh, the author is Doug Wilson, who is with us. Doug, um, uh, how long has this book book been out? Uh, about a week and a half. And so far, so, so good. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you know, what, it's a little bit of the off season. A lot of people aren't thinking about baseball yet, too. But uh, is uh, so? Is there another idea that's popped over your head, and you think you're going to go to next, or are you going to kind of uh, chill out for a little while and uh, get this book going? Um, yeah, kind of. You know, sometimes you get real busy in your day to day life, and you wonder where you had time to begin with. To, to, take on a project like that but uh and then some days you're driving home and something just hits you in the head and you think hey that's a good idea (laughs) so for right now i don't have anything uh cooking what's the process like for you know like this book let's play to the life and times of ernie banks is a do you uh have to kind of go out on your own or do you get some help from your publisher on on uh having signings uh where did where does where does you know what what all outlets can your books be purchased at all that all that kind of stuff does that do you get a lot of help on that end um it, it all depends on the publisher um you know a small publisher small academic publisher like like mcfarland for the first for the fred hutchinson book you basically on your own on everything because um, they don't have the budget the market and stuff if you're jane levy and you write a book on babe ruth they set everything up for you and you know it's 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 uh, number one seller before before you even open it up. Um, most of the publishers fall in between there, and so. Um, but you know, for me, I'm not a household name as far as a writer, so I, I do a lot of that on my own. I set up, uh, you know, try to go to. I like going to uh, independent bookstores. Um, mainly, you know, I just like bookstores, but 
uh, I like to go and give a presentation and talk to people and um, it's always neat when people come and tell their own stories of, of the guys too and so but but I set most of that up myself you know we were talking the other day we have a granddaughter who's uh just over two years old and you know we, we made a list of things that she'll never be probably told about want to look up unless she wants to get in that pacific uh, uh genre of, of, of entertainment or sports or whatever you know uh, for example like she probably won't know who popeye the sailor man is or she probably you know definitely <laughs> definitely won't know what a cd is or stuff like that um yeah. Is Ernie Banks still on the tips of the tongues of people in Chicago? Um, a lot of people. Um, I probably every Cubs fan knows who he is, knows Mr. Cub, and like I said, knows Les Play too. Um, every good Cub fan should know a little bit more about him because the era that he played uh, in really set up modern Cub Nation. You know, when he started, nobody went to their games by the time he finished they were selling out all the time 69 and um so hit him and his group on santo billy williams uh you know to a lesser extent leo derocher you know they sort of set the paved the way for uh nobody being able to get a ticket into wrigley field and just how popular they are now so yeah it's important for all the cubs fans to know know that and to know their history so we have Fred Hutchinson and the 1964 Cincinnati Reds. We have the bird, the life and legacy of Mark Fidrich. Uh, we have the biography of Brooks Robinson called Brooks, the biography of Brooks Robinson, and Pudge, the the biography of Carlton Fisk. W- tell everybody once again, of course, we're, we're chatting about your new one, Let's Play 2, The Life and Times of Ernie Banks, but tell everybody again where they can find your books, get your books, get a hold of you. Do you have a website, anything like that? Um, yeah, I do have a website, and probably the easiest way is you just Google Doug Wilson Baseball, and, you know, it'll pop up there. Um, but, uh, of course, the, all the books are available online on uh, Amazon, and the new book, the Ernie Banks book, is in the bookstores right now, and, and it's available, of course, online also. Of course, I'll put up all the information, too, uh, once we uh, get done with our interview. But I also put a, uh, a post up on um, uh, baseball, keeping the nostalgia alive on Facebook. Uh, we have a page that has about, you know, 8,000 followers and growing every day once I get time to do with it. But people will be able to find it there. Um, Doug Wilson, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Once again, I don't know by the beginning I called you Jeff. Uh, I still need to find out uh, who, why Jeff was on my mind later on this evening. But uh, I appreciate your time. I'm sure everybody uh, uh, on our uh, podcast uh, will enjoy, and uh, uh, hopefully this will uh, sell some books for you. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks, thanks for having me on. I enjoyed it.